The Bible passages can be found on page five of your service sheets. There are two. The first one is from Galatians chapter four, beginning at verse one. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. The second Bible reading is from the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 2, beginning at verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. And every parent's heart. <gasps> Three whole days. Not knowing where he was. And yet we learn from it. Let's pray. Father, it would seem our Lord's first recorded words, his first recorded words were to his parents, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Jesus, you taught, you taught us to call your Father our Father, our so intimate, Abba Father, and Thank you for making this possible by, by the cross of Jesus Christ that we glory in and his resurrection from the dead. 
Teach us now by the power of your Spirit. Amen. My text today is a simple one. It's summer. Our brains are full. My text today is 11 verses from Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. A stunningly unique story of Jesus as a boy, as a 12-year-old. I remember when I was a 12-year-old, listening to an old man like me drone on about this passage, but I'm like, I could identify with this story. Not that I was identifying with Jesus, but just the sense of what it meant to be 12 and yet lost from your parents for a number of days, trying to imagine what it was like for him, although we learn what it was like for him in this story. I think the passage just teaches us three things. In fact, indeed, the boy Jesus teaches us or takes us to three different places, and you can see the outline on page six of your orders of service. Jesus takes us to the personal, and he takes us, secondly, the true insight, and thirdly, he takes us to the passion. But he takes us in this passage from somewhere to somewhere. He takes us first from the pious, the mere religious, to the personal. We need a personal relationship with God our Father. Secondly, he takes us from mere information, gathering of information, to true insight and wisdom. And thirdly, he takes us from the Passover, this Jewish custom, to the passion, which will open up God to all believers all across the world. It is also our final in the series, A Marvelous Christmas. I know it feels like a long time ago. Strictly speaking, we're still in the Christmas season until tomorrow, but I know none of you care about that. This is our... Uh, final uh, message in the, the Advent and Christmas series, our last They Marveled text, although we could spend all year doing another They Were Amazed text all the way through the Gospels. The They Were Amazed text is in verse 47, on page 5, verse 47, everyone who heard him was amazed. They marveled at his understanding and his answers. That word there is not the word I've been introducing through the series, that's not the Thalmadzo word, but it's the same set of words, it means to be amazed, to be awestruck, to marvel, to be astonished, they were gobsmacked at the understanding of this 12-year-old. So three things we learn. Firstly, Jesus takes us from the pious, that's not a word we use very often, from the pious to the personal from the mere religious to a full, complete relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. To be pious is, of course, to be devoted to a religious practice or to religious ideals. Most people throughout history have been religious, and therefore those who've been devoted to those religions, you might call them pious, no matter what religion. But Jesus takes us much further. He takes us into another room. He takes us into the room we need to be in, namely to a personal relationship with the living God, indeed His Father and no one else. He gives us a relationship with God. Now, there can be good pious and bad pious, and what Mary and Joseph have here is good pious. Verse 41, like good Jewish people, each year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. We'll come back to that in our third point. But they're pious, Jews. They're doing what the Hebrew religion required of them. Coming to Jerusalem for the Passover was one of the commands of the Old Testament, and so Jerusalem swelled at this time of year to something like eight times its normal size. 
little bit like Sydney on December the 31st, and I know this very well. I live in the rocks. So Mary and Joseph go up to Jerusalem. Each year they go, but verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up as normal to the feast according to the custom. But it meant here, verse 42, it mentions Jesus' age. He's 12 years old. Why, Why be so specific about his age? It's the only information we have, by the way, on Jesus as a boy. Well, 12 years is one year from 13, and 13 is when a young Jewish boy becomes a man and takes on the responsibilities of manhood, perhaps learns his father's business. What happened the year before the 13th birthday? Well, listen to the Jewish Mishnah describing ancient customs. This is on page one of your your order of service. Listen to this. They should not cause the children to fast on the Day of Atonement, but they should train them one or two years before they are of age, say, for example, 12 years old. They should become versed in the commandments, the Ten Commandments of the other Jewish Torah. So, before 13, one year before, for example, a father was meant to teach his son what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be a godly man, a a pious man. The son was required to seek out and learn all he could from his father, and the father would teach the son the Ten Commandments and the Passover and what it meant to sort of turn up every year to do so, and I guess he would take him, the boy, around Jerusalem and answer his questions. The father would have then taught his son, perhaps, about the family business. We're going to talk about carpentry as we talk about all of life. Um, And the idea was that the father led the son around and taught the son. The son would then seek out, follow, and learn from the father. So this time is a very special time Mary and Joseph, and they're on the cusp of manhood, son. But notice the twist in the passage. Who does the seeking in the narrative? In the narrative, who does the seeking? It's Joseph who does the seeking, and who is required to learn. I mean, Jesus is learning from the teachers as he sits there, but in the end, it's Joseph who learns something. It's Joseph who gets his son's eyes, his perspective on life. We'll come back to that. Let's go back to the story. They turn up to Jerusalem after the festival was over, verse 43. His parents were returning home. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. And I'm like, you know, I read that as a kid and went, yeah, yeah, that's pretty scary for the kid. But now I read it through the lens of a parenthood. And I'm like, what a gobsmackingly scary moment for them on the end of that first day. Anyone feel this? <laughs> I might have lost a kid for 10 minutes once, uh, you know, but I'd scrawl my phone number right across his belly in permanent marker, you know. <laughs> I got the phone call 10 minutes after I lost him. This is a whole day, well, and it's three whole days. How did, it, how did this happen? I mean, I've got a, four kids, three to 15, I had a Volkswagen multivan, seven-seater. So, you know, it's, it's hard not to, to miss it when one child is missing. You've just got to count the, the one seat that's not taken. That's not stopped me from driving off without a kid from time to time, but, you know, 30 seconds. How did this happen? Well, most my commentaries tell me that the women set out first with the children. Why? Smaller legs. A little slower. Come on, kiddies. 
the men of the village were set up last in order to catch up with them at the end of each day. But remember, Jesus is on the cusp of adulthood. So maybe Mary's thinking, Joseph's got him up the back and is doing his duty. Maybe Joseph thinks, last year of childhood, perhaps Mary has him up front. In any case, they rendezvous on the first night, no little Yeshua. Where is Joshua? No Jesus. Not with a relative. So they're scrambling around asking. You can see them going, who was the last to see him? And someone says, I remember him back in Jerusalem. So they go back there, verse 45. I imagine frantically, uh, they didn't find, um, they did not find, etc. Verse 46, they find him in the temple after three days, calm as a cucumber, safe as houses. Perhaps I shouldn't say that today. We're going to pray about houses lost in a moment's time. Is that all right? There he is, cool as a cucumber, sitting, listening, learning. But they let him have it. They're incredulous. Verse 48, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. In the original language, it's something like, child, why have you treated us like this? You're a year from manhood. You're supposed to be learning from your father. This year of all years, you're supposed to be learning responsibility, and yet here you are. You're still a child. In light of all of this, Jesus' response is even more astounding. Like Jesus, he always, he always has a non-anxious presence. Verse 49, he says, why were you searching for me anyway? There's a sense in which this is where I should have been. You could have gone on. On the cusp of manhood. He does go back home, of course. You know that from verse 51 and 2. But then he says, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? There's an interesting translation in that verse that I'll come back to, and those who know the King James Version know already that there's an interesting translation of that verse. But there it is. Don't, didn't you know I must be in my father's house? He's not talking about a beautiful building like this. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem, the naval of Israel and of the world, the place where, um, representing the place where you go and meet God. I must be in my father's house. But verse 50, they didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was saying. Indeed, she just treasured these things in her heart. She lodged them here for later. Now, you see what's potentially happening here. Uh, Mary's charge is you're supposed to be learning from your father, and Jesus says, I am. Now, let me get this straight. Jesus was obedient as a son, verse 51, but he's claiming something new here, something extraordinary, something scandalous for a Jew and a pagan, something liberating for us, something that we in our modern times miss because of our familiarity. Basically, this here, this moment, is probably the first time where a human being spoke about God as being a father. I mean, Psalm 63 is a very intimate psalm, but it's still God, my God, not, oh, oh, my Father. And Jesus is saying here, Dad, Joseph, I love you, I'll obey you and honor you, but my relationship with my heavenly Father, first time, transcends even my relationship with you. In fact, it predates it. He is the eternal Son. But here's the thing I want you to take away today. Jesus is the first person to have ever used such a personal language for his relationship with the divine, with God, is the first person to say he's a father in heaven and that'll be his signature 
phrase to talk about God, and we're so used to it. I can still remember my Northern Irish Sunday school teacher. She was a Protestant firebrand. Bless her. Gone to glory. Her son comes to the 6 p.m. service, and she would say, how fortunate we are to call God our Father. And I'm, as a 10-year-old, I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And she's like, no. You think it's your somehow right as a human being. Guess what you've done in that moment? You have been presumptuous. She taught me not to be presumptuous. That is my Father. That's new. That's what Jesus opened up. No one else opened up that for us. The Old Testament rarely used such intimate terms. The ancient religion certainly didn't. To use such a personal address was too intimate, too audacious. Jesus is opening up a way to God that isn't just pious, but personal. You need a personal relationship with God. That's what Paul is saying in this first reading that Anne read to us a moment ago. The child in that story is Israel. When Israel, when uh, the child was a child, he had tutors, like a law. Uh, he was backed up and knocked on the hand by the law and told to sit down like every child is uh, with, a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a, a guardian or a trustee. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, Mary, born under Torah, to redeem those under Torah that we might be sons, not slaves to the law, but sons of the living God. That's why John will say how great the Father's love that is lavished on us that we can be called children of God. And that's why you and I, sons and daughters, we're all heirs. All sons in that sense, all heirs. And because you are sons, male, female, Jew, Gentile, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit that calls out, Abba, Father, so intimate. Keep praying. You have a relationship with God and Jesus, if you do, if you don't choose it today, Jesus takes you there. Not just values, not just piety, but not even religious, but knowing God. Okay. Secondly, Jesus takes us, this is important, next step, from mere information to true insight. We know God, what next? Jesus, verse 46, was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Three parts to learning, sitting, listening, and asking. Wouldn't it be great if in 2020 we could simply follow Jesus at this point to sit for a little while, to listen to the Bible and to ask questions of it and of each other and of our leaders, weighing up what is being said here, engaging with it. That's what Jesus is doing. It's not that the teachers in Jerusalem knew everything. Jesus is asking them questions, but they're astounded at his answers. So there's an interaction going on. There's engagement with the information. Jesus is asking good follow-up questions, and he's been doing it for three days, straining and yearning for truth and righteousness. Wouldn't it be great if we did this more often? Unlike our social media world where it's like, my listening takes about 30 seconds. Yeah, I saw what you said at your post at 9.36 p.m., it's now 9.42, and I'm going to tell you what I think. Now, why don't we, I'm saying this to myself, why don't we act differently than our culture around us, sitting more often in the Word, chewing on it, listening to each other, asking questions, because we're thirsty to know more. I realized a number of years ago that I'd never read the Bible fully through in a whole year. I've read all of the Bible by reading bits of it at each point. Um, 
and I tried when I was 15 years old, and I got to Isaiah and thought, what am I, I don't, I'm not picking, I don't understand what I'm reading. But now, in my 50th year, but I'm not 50 yet, need you all to know that. In my 50th year, I've decided I have to read the Bible fully through in a year, and I, you know, I'm saying this here, and I ask me through the year, <laughs> uh, I'll be honest with you, uh, but I'm doing the Machine Bible Reading Program, and my email address is on the back of the Orders of Service. If you want that PDF, it's a very simple, it's a 19th century Bible reading program. It's astounding. I'm reading Genesis chapter 5 today, Matthew 5 today, Ezra 5 today, and Acts chapter 5 today, and it's astounding, yesterday's reading, how Ezra and Acts were the same thing. Building a temple, building God's kingdom, opposition, opposition, boldness, boldness. But I want to sit there reading it, I don't want to just finish it, because you can do it in 10 minutes. I don't want to do it in 10 minutes and not thirst in it and look and mark and inwardly digest which you can do, of course, in a community group this year when we talk a little bit more about them in February. Or in Rivendell, that's the whole purpose of Rivendell. It's not just a place of refreshment, but of learning, of asking questions. And there'll be a Q&A time with Dr. Errington and contribute with the answers that we have as we read our Bibles. We need a little more thirst. That'll be a good way to follow Jesus Christ. Is that what you want this year? A little more thirst? And not just for information, that's my danger as I might do the machine reading program, but insight to bring together the ideas to get to the essence of things so I can understand our world better, what we do in our world and how we do it as we go to work, as we treat the planet. I want to understand the nature of things about what it means to be human, a sinner who's saved. I want to understand the nature of things when it comes to God, the divine, hope and joy that comes in Him. I want insight, not just mere information. That's what Jesus takes us to right here in this passage. Not just information, but wisdom that comes from the Lord, which is what 2020 is all about. And we'll be introducing this next week. Verse 47, well, I just did. Verse 47, everyone who heard Jesus was amazed. They marveled at his understanding. The word that we translate understanding is not just sort of um, the stuffing of information in the mind. It's actually the Greek word, and you I'll tell you the Greek word because you'll get the English meaning of it. It's the word synersis, synersis, which where we get the word to synthesize, to synthesize, to not just have information in the brain so we can spout it out, but to put it together and make meaning of our lives and the lives of others. Jesus can see how the Scriptures fit together, and he can see the essential nature of things. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When he talks about the wisest here, I think he's meaning those who gather information, the university professors. Listen to this. It's on page one. To understand reality is not the same thing as to know about outward events. Right? You can know all about uh, climate science, for example, and be a horrible human being. For example, you really could know about it. You see, my, my point. To understand reality is not the same thing as to know about outward events. It is to perceive the essential nature of things and to understand how it all fits together. The best informed man is not necessarily the wisest, meaning you know, just the person who's gathered information. It's in part why, and I know the vice chancellor of the University of Sydney, and he tells me, you know, being a professor at university is no guarantee to intelligence at all. 
I mean wisdom intelligence, not the gathering of information. Indeed, Bonhoeffer goes on, there is a danger that precisely in the multiplicity of knowledge, he will lose sight of what is essential. He won't be able to see the forest through the trees. And here's Jesus seeing the forest, the bigger pictures, the essential nature of things, true insight. Perhaps Jesus is asking questions and making links for the teachers that they've never seen before. How Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, corresponds to Daniel 7. Maybe he's bringing those two together. Maybe he's asking questions about the place of Jewish Torah, especially uh, the Gentiles would come one day to know Jesus without circumcision, for example. I mean, what, what would it mean for the Lord to be fulfilled in the Messiah? Jesus is, is soaking this stuff in now, not just as information, but synesis, bringing them together uh, as true insight. I say, take it, if we follow Jesus, we don't just study Scripture but we find in them true insight. We find in them Jesus, a person, not just information. The whole of Scriptures testify about Jesus. And so in 2020, I want, I want myself, and I wear that it's hard to change things as time goes on, but I'd love to say at the end of 2020, I was a wiser person than when I started. Last then, briefly, Jesus takes us from the Passover to the Passion, from Jewish piety and Torah and regulations to a new way of knowing God. Did you notice that they were at the temple at Passover? Passover was the time when Israel remembered that a lamb must be sacrificed, an offering must be given for sins to be covered, for the just judgment of God, his wrath against my sin to be avoided, and for me to have freedom and life and hope. A lamb must be sacrificed, according to the Jewish custom, if the people are to be set free. That's perhaps what Joseph was instructing Jesus in as they walked around Jerusalem that time at the Passover. Look at verse 49 with me. Jesus said, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, in the original language, the had to is clear. I must be. It carries with it the sense that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house. It's the same word that Jesus would later use when he said, the son of man must die. What is slightly more ambiguous is how to translate the word in my father's house. Literally, it says, did you not know that I must be in the things of my father? Maybe he's talking about the temple. Or maybe, didn't you know that I must concern myself with my father's matters, with the things of my father? Those who know the King James Version, it's on page one, goes like this. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? I had to be about my father's business. And my father's business is that God seeks and saves the lost, like me before I was found. My father's business is that Jesus must die in Jerusalem as the true lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus then takes us from that Passover to the true one, to the passion. And he gives us a personal relationship with God and all the synersis that goes with it, the insight, the knowledge of the essential nature of things. Note, Joseph lost his son for three days and he came and found him and was astonished. God the Father lost his eternal son for three nights in the tomb, and that was agony. 
But he raised him from the dead. Jesus cried on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why hast thou lost me? Let me conclude. As I understand being a father, and I am one, uh, to children, not the religious nomenclature, <laughs> to be a father of children is in part to give your child your eyes. To be a mother, it's the same thing. To give your daughter, your son, your eyes. Not literally your eyes, although my children all have my wife's eyes, and thankful I am that they do. Rather, I mean, to be a father is to give your child your outlook, your view of things, to walk them around and say, this is the way things are, to give them your view of the future, the, sh the shape of things to come, and therefore to give them confidence and hope and a path to walk on. What did Joseph want to give his son? Well, he was a pious Jew, and he wanted, I presume, for Jesus to grow up honourable and capable, a good citizen, a good Jew, a, go a godly Jew. He wanted him to grow up and strong and wisdom and stature and favour with God and man, as all Jews did. Maybe to learn the carpentry business, at least until the time of his ministry, as the angel said. Presumably, Joseph wanted Jesus to put his hands to work on wood. You know where this is going? Jesus knew by the age of 12 that he was going to give Joseph his eyes. Joseph was the one who was going to be learning. You and I are the ones who need to sit and listen and ask questions of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that he was going to join his father's business, not of putting his hands to wood to craft furniture, but rather to put his hands to another kind of wood, a cross, a Roman cross, to craft forgiveness for sinners, not furniture for homemakers. Who's going to craft a new path to God with new hope and to craft sons of God who know their Heavenly Father, to craft daughters who are heirs of hope, who cry, Abba, Father, to craft a people who live for Him and learn from Him and sit at His feet and know Him and seek Him, who have a personal relationship because this is what children do with their parents. And what we're required to do is we get to know our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you in prayer, help us to know that what we're doing is profound and not our right at birth. Um, all of us have cried out to you at various times and you listen to us, but a relationship with you, fully forgiven, justified, sanctified and glorified, with a hope that comes in the resurrection, this is not a gift at birth, it's a gift at our second birth when we move from the pious to the personal, when we choose to follow Jesus Christ and to thirst after Him, after the essential nature of things about our world, about ourselves, about the divine, about you. And we thank you that Jesus went to the cross, that He put His hands to wood, not just as a carpenter as He went to work, but as a saviour who gave us sonship, um, heirs of, of the living hope that we might be daughters of the living God's sons, of an eternal Father, we thank you for all of this as we speak to you now as our Heavenly Father. Amen.